I dislike this spot so much right in the front on those cold, drippy Northwest Saturday nights when the front door would open. I've been strategically placed in the middle. Uh, Gathered behind me are a group of singers, and, and I know what to do. My cue, when they stop singing and they begin humming, I'm to speak. And if I can't rely upon my memory, I can simply read the speech taped to the side of the can in my cold little hands. Do you have the scene? Good evening. I'm from the Vancouver Seventh-day Adventist Church on East Reserve Street. We're here helping the less fortunate through the holiday season. Thank you. I remembered to say less fortunate, not poor. You don't say poor. We're here helping the less fortunate during the holiday season, collecting collecting money for food and clothing and housing and shelter. And we were just wondering here in your neighborhood if you'd like to help this holiday season. Ah, everybody can breathe. The speech is over. And it doesn't matter now if they put money in the can or they don't. It began with a little town of Bethlehem. It ends with, we wish you a Merry Christmas and we can go. I just disliked that spot right in the middle up front when that door would open. A little while later, it was in the sanctuary, East Reserve Street in Vancouver, when a a man came from out of town with a a lot of hair and a big voice, and he waved his arms when he spoke, a guest preacher, and he came for 20 nights in a row, and he had charts and pictures, and he scared me a little. And on cue every night, he just had to look at the organist, and this song would play. I never liked that song. I didn't like it on verse 3. I didn't like it on verse 5. I didn't like it when she was still playing and no one was coming forward. We just need one soul to come forward. Even today, when I hear that song play, I feel like getting up out of my seat and going forward. So the music will just stop. I've never liked that song. Now, fast forward into the academy cafeteria a few years later, at the end of high school week of prayer, when the speakers wound up to the final Friday finish. And they say, everyone hold still, close the doors, nobody move. The spirit is hovering, and he might be hovering over you, whatever that means. He's hovering. And we held still. Because God was moving and the spirit was hovering until student after student emotional outbursts. They fell to their knees and cried out to God, confessing and accepting the cross of Jesus. And yes, it stepped over the boundary of spiritual abuse. Some of you have heard stories like this. Many came forward that day. I saw another scene, not that different, a little while ago in a large Christian church in Southern California, the preacher finished his sermon and it was time for his appeal. And he said almost the same, deacons stand at the door, no one move. This is now God's time. Everyone hold still. And the appeal went for as long as the sermon almost. 
The preacher knew there were 50 souls in the auditorium to be saved that day. 50. And he began counting and hands were raising and thank you, Jesus. And there's another and another. And I take those to be sincere, by the way. 46, 47, 48 came slow. 49. And we're 25 minutes into this appeal. And then the preacher just zoned in right here on one side of the worship center and said, number 50, I know you're out there. You are out here. We're all going to hold still till number 50 raises his or her hand. Praying for you, number 50. I'm praying for you, number 50. It goes on and on. And what the preacher finally said, I can't even bring myself to say. I'll alter it a little. When he finally turned his back and said, number 50, somebody's not going to heaven today. What he didn't know was number 50 had his hand up over there the whole time. <laughs> Turned around, number 50, thank you, God bless you. And then 51, 52, they got to 54 that day. 54. Hmm. How did Christianity get here? From where we were last week, Gathered after the cross at the empty tomb where we said the resurrection cries out for a witness, someone to tell the story. And Mary was just that someone. And Jesus said to her, Mary, go and tell. And Mary went to her brothers and sisters and said, I've seen Jesus. I've been with Jesus. I experienced that. And her testimony took off, which is a spiritual gift, I said, giving voice to your God story, singing your response to God, your testimony, your witness. And we could think of ourselves in that same light as third-day people with a story to tell, a third-day perspective The poet says, it's always the third day. How did we get from that storytelling to what I've just described? I suspect even when I say the word witness this morning, some of us, a good deal of us, just tense up in the middle. We get a little hard on the inside and we hold real still because it's just not much for us. It makes us a little uncomfortable and we're so glad that there are some people who are good at this, like you, Pastor Larry, who still loves to go to the neighborhoods and pass things out. Some people who still love this, we're grateful because I'd rather bake a loaf of bread. I'd rather drive somebody to the doctor. I'd rather move boxes or mow a lawn or just about anything. But but don't tell me I have to go out and witness or stand up with a microphone. And, and I relate to that, by the way, as the person standing in front of you. I'm the girl behind the piano. I'm the girl behind the scenes. Don't tell me I have to stand up here. Now, there are a few of you, by the way, who have the spiritual gift of evangelism. You, you labor over the lost. You pray for them. You have eyes for them. You seek them out. You bring them in. It is your spiritual gift. And there are others. I haven't described you fairly. The others who are a little newer to the faith, to Christian faith, even to Adventism, where you're, you've not become stale like the rest of us. And the idea of telling your story from the third day perspective is still exciting to you. But the most of us would, would rather we don't have to be the ones. For five weeks, we'll spend time talking about what it is to tell our God story. We'll use the curriculum from Willow Creek Association called Just Walk Across the Room. 
where the idea is, and it's what is suggested is, if your God is so great, if what Christianity confesses and professes is true, if the God you know has really altered your life, if everything you do and all your being is organized around this, why wouldn't you just walk across the room and say so? To people in your sphere of influence, people in your family, people you work with, people you're in a hobby club with, people you rub up against regularly that know you. Why wouldn't you just say, by the way, would you like to hear my God story and have you made a decision for this God? Now, I want to ask some questions this morning just for Adventist Christians and bring the conversation into our context What does make it difficult for us to move from our comfort zone to what Bill Hybel says is the zone of the unknown, taking the step and the walk out from where we are comfortable here and with people like us? Why don't we step out with more ease? And I'm going to suggest to you just a few educated, maybe, maybe not, guesses this morning about why it's so difficult for us to step out with our God story to other people. People, One guess I have is that we are so busy doing this for our own generations of children and grandchildren, aren't we? If nothing else, Adventist Christians want to make sure we've passed on the faith to the next generations. It's why Mesa Grande Academy means so much to us. It's why we write the checks every month. It's why we're down there. It's why we work with the academy. It's why 150 of them are in San Diego today and we support that trip and we're, we'll be eager to hear the reports because decisions for eternity are made at the academy. Last week in our services, we baptized five all students from Mesa Grande Academy. We're quite busy telling our God stories to the next generation of our own children, of our own grandchildren. In fact, we will not only walk, we'll jog, we'll sprint, we'll marathon to make sure ours know about God. Yes, that takes a lot of our resources. So not as much time to step out, outside of. We're quite busy with our own. We also, another guess why this is difficult, many of us in our work and in the vocations that we've chosen, we've already made choices to serve God. We've chosen our professions and we work at specific locations where we already realize we've made this adjustment because God has affected and influenced and changed our life forever. So I go to this job and I do these things and I am a servant worker and a servant leader Monday through Friday. I know why I do this. It's because of my God connection. Everybody else should just sort of get it. And, And when I'm off duty, can't I just be off duty? Do I have to be about God's business all the time? Maybe that keeps us from walking across the room. Maybe we, maybe we just get a little distracted and busy. That we know the Bible says Christ came to seek and save the lost. And we're supposed to care about what God cares about. We're supposed to care about what Christ cares about. But to be quite honest, there's not a whole lot left over when the day's done. And day after day and week after week and month after month. Where am I supposed to get the resources to care about what God cares about? I'm so busy. The devil's biggest gift to us. So, 
I get distracted and I get busy. And to be honest with you, I can tell all of you, when I leave you, I just pray I'm not going to run into somebody else who needs to hear about God. I just really don't have resources left over. When I fly on the airplane in particular, my prayer, you're not going to tell this now, I trust you people. (laughs) My prayer is just don't put me next to somebody who needs me. Because God, I got to study now. I have to do this or that now. I need my laptop open now. Please don't put me next to... God bless the airplane evangelists among us here this morning. There are some of you. Some of our church leadership. Division, North American Division president. People who pray to get on an airplane. Bill Hybels, if you read his book, prays to get on an airplane and God will send him someone. I get on an airplane and think, just I hope everybody's healthy around me. Took a flight to Greece several years ago. This is not a way to remain inconspicuously Christian on an airplane flight. I had a stack of index cards with me, Greek vocabulary. I needed to have these all memorized by the time I got off the airplane. I'd done most of them, but I really needed to hammer it in because when I got off, I had six weeks of very intense work. And I just, my prayer was, don't let anybody bother me. I was still a student, wasn't even a pastor, had a good excuse. Don't bug me. Have to get an A. Sweet couple sitting next to me to the right. For some reason, I was moved up to the business section, and here they were in large overstuffed seats and plenty of room, and they saw me flipping through my cards one after another, and I was quiet, saying things in my head, flipping my cards over and over and over, and I could hear them whispering, and I knew they were whispering about me. Finally, she said to me, what are you, what are you doing, dear? Told her the story, studying my Greek cards. I have to get off the airplane and I need to be ready for an exam. Oh, she's quite interested in what I was doing. I just thought, oh, here it comes. Talking to her husband, whispering, she's studying Greek. Whoa, the story just, please don't bother me. I just need to study. Don't have time now. You want to know the craziest outcome? They didn't need me. They were just going to pray for me. Didn't have time. Sometimes we don't take the walk across the room because we're a little busy. We're a little uh, absorbed in other things in the world. It's not so easy to leave our comfort zone when things are like that. Sometimes we don't take the walk across the room because, well, we really shouldn't have to. We can write out the tithe check. Can't we just, we can hire the evangelist to do that. There really are people who are gifted at this, people who do it well. I'll support the missionaries. Let them go far. Let the conference evangelist come in. In fact, hook the satellite up. The next time the meetings come, you just open the church doors and let the people come and and I'll write the check because I can do that. Just don't make me stand up and do the other. Isn't that good enough? And one more educated guess. Maybe why it's hard for us to take a walk across the room. Maybe it's difficult because after years of theological conversation within Adventism, maybe after this many years we get some theological messages that don't lay nicely together, a little conflicting or confusing. We, we know, we all know we're supposed to go. 
all four Gospels in the Bible say go in some way or the other. The Gospel Commission is there. And on into Acts, the continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 1 begins with, you are my witnesses. We know we're supposed to go with the God story. That's not news to us. From the very beginning, we understood as Adventist Christians, we're supposed to go to all, to where? Every nation. So it is Joshua Himes is making his leaflets in the early 1840s with Father Miller, thinking that if we spread the country with these leaflets and if we put one, a stack of them on every boat leaving the harbors in in the United States, surely there is a representative of every nation living right here in America. Surely then we've given the gospel to everyone and, and God can now come because we've been faithful to the commission to go. Even today, we keep some charts and records about how many nations and countries the Adventist church has entered. So we know how many more until we've gone. That's one theological message. But I remember from a young girl growing up in the church also that the path is narrow, that few will choose it, that many will fall off, that many will turn their backs on the truth. And by the way, that's just among us. What about all of them? That you'll present many with the truth and they will turn their back and abandon God. And and in the end, the remnant will be few. We've used the number 144,000 as imagery for only a few will go anyhow. And so, if only a few are going to go. And I wonder about the, the ramifications of these messages together. Go, but don't expect a lot to follow you. Don't go, but the path is going to be narrow and only a few will make it. And it is one of the things I tell my theology professors, my friends and my mentors. Would you people sit in a room and talk this out and help the church? What about the remnant? Is it an expanding remnant or is it a shrinking, narrowing remnant? We need help on this topic. And they tell me, you go figure it out. So so here we are talking. So if it's a shrinking remnant, then I shouldn't get too excited and perhaps I adjust my expectations. After all, the Sabbath is kind of challenging for people in the real world. And so I might shouldn't expect them to become Sabbath keepers. Well, now we have a Sunday keeping church under our roof and I could at least I've introduced them to Jesus and I'll put them here. And and maybe America is gone the secular way like England and Europe, and maybe we should just follow the globalization of Christianity south and and be happy for Central America and South America and the Philippines and Thailand where all the baptisms are. Maybe we should just say that is going and be happy. Or maybe that's just one way we talk ourselves into not moving out of our comfort zone, not Walking across the room. Is it possible that I've underestimated God and God's ability to reach people for him? Is it possible? So it is. I turned this week, uh, last week, John chapter 14. There is a Bible in your pew if you'd like to follow along. We have been in the Gospel of John several weeks now. But it is this passage that took me off guard the farewell discourses. So this is leading up to the trials in Gethsemane and the cross. 
The beginning of chapter 14 is so familiar to us, usually from funerals and from times of grieving where we need comfort. And it's familiar to us in the King James language, which is what I'll place on the screen this morning. I wonder, would you like to read together verses 1 to 3, John chapter 14, off of your screen here? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. It's an answer given to comfort and give hope to the disciples who have been asking Jesus, who Jesus said, I'm about to leave. What, where are you going? And Jesus hasn't answered. And they ask again, where are you going, Jesus? He says, where I'm going, you can't follow. Peter said, oh, watch, I can follow. Tell me where you're going. I'll follow you anywhere. And instead of giving a location, Jesus says, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. The New American Standard Bible, the Amplified Bible, have a very nice translation of this passage where Jesus is supposedly going to my father's house. In my father's house, there are many mansions. The New American Standard Bible, the Amplified Bible say, my father's house has many dwelling places. Which is to say to the disciples, there's room. There's a space for you. Don't be troubled in your heart. There's a space. But I look at it even longer here, this text. And and if you spent time looking at the words and overlapping them with other ideas in the Gospel of John, especially where we've been the last few weeks, the vine and the branches and abiding, it's the same word for the rooms in the Father's house, abiding places. If I think a little longer about this passage, you know, and not naming a location, but, but rather naming a person in my father's household of relationships, there is space, the text says. Doesn't say space for just you. It just says there is space and plenty of it. Don't be worried. You'll all, the, I can accommodate all of you. And I wonder why did you say many? Rooms. Why did you say many dwelling places? There's only 12 of them in the conversation, or maybe a few more disciples gathered there. They don't need many rooms, much large space, do they? They're used to sleeping on top of each other on the desert floor. What do they need many much for? Why say many much for just this group? In my father's household of relationships, there is much room. As if to say... There is room to pull in and accommodate and seat and find space for anyone who wants to be with the Father. There is so much space that it's immeasurable, uncountable. It's abundant, many, much, large. Like we sang earlier, how wide, how deep is the love of God? More than I can imagine, more room, more space than I can imagine in the abiding places with our God. That's what the text teaches us. 
There's not a shortage on space or on accommodations, which also then leads me to believe that when the Gospel Commission says go and the text doesn't really say where to go or how to go, Jesus is fairly clear, go everywhere because there's this much room in the household of God. Don't underestimate the space God has in God's potential. Go everywhere. Have I underestimated what God wants to do? From inside Adventist Christianity, do I see there's many, many rooms in the Father's house? That's more than just for us. Many, many rooms. I wonder if we need to be rewired for growth in Adventism in North America. Fascinating study, PBS did a few months ago, reported on a few months ago, with elementary school children. These are children in math class whose grades aren't so good. And they decided to have the child psychologists work with them because they believe, their hypothesis is, if the child thinks they will perform poorly in math class, they probably will. So they pulled them out and had the child psychologists sit with them and teach them how their brain works. Here's a picture of your brain. Did you know your brain is wired for intelligence? Did you know you're going to be smart? You're supposed to be smart? They taught the children. This is how your brain works. They gave them a little neurology session, and then they sent them back into class. What do you suppose happened? Their math scores went up because they are now wired for growth and potential. I can do this. I'm supposed to do this. My support scores are supposed to be good because my brain grows, they've learned. Could it be an Adventism? While we talk growth and go, we behave fixed. Think about that with me, would you? We say go, we say grow, but, mm, but we behave fixed. It's really nice here. We, we know how it is. We have come to expect it. So this is what we like. And we say go and growth, and that means, but you're going to change the arrangement here. If you do that, we won't know what to expect. So, so then we move back towards fixed, where we preserve and we hunker down and we protect. While we speak growth, which means think creatively and go beyond the boundaries and expect the unexpected, and then we pull back and say, but that's a little scary. We kind of like fixed because inside here, fixed, at least we can sort of all agree together. You know, we, even the worship service, while not everybody thinks those guitars and amps should be on the platform, we've sort of learned how to maneuver together. But if we bring them in from the outside, oh, oh. so fixed is just a little easier. Could it be we speak growth, but we behave fixed? Growth means it's be a little messy around here. We kind of like it the way it is. If we're honest, if we're honest, the church has a, a plan in place for many, many years now. This, this Calamasa church building to 2,000 members. I don't know who those 2,000 members are supposed to be, but my guess is they're supposed to be a little like us. Because we like us. I like you. You dress nice. You take a shower. You smile. You have health insurance. You're employed. We raise nice children here. Your children and my children can play together. They may grow up and marry like next weekend, Holly and Hendrick. How wonderful. 
safe. Thank you for providing a spouse for my child that's reliable, trustworthy. We, we like us, so we'd like those next few hundred members to be like us, which means the walk across the room is safest at the medical center or in the community when a ne- the next young professional family moves in or, or when the next retiree comes to the area to check us out. We say, oh, we like the way you look. You wear a suit. You've been a professional. You'll fit in well at Calamesa. Fixed. If we decided to take the unchurched seriously, if we decided to take the growth perspective seriously, to rewire for growth, it could be messy. Might smell a little in here. You might have to sit by somebody who smells. The people we bring in here might be on methamphetamines. They might be abusers of the elderly. They may, they may have a criminal record. They may not be somebody you want your children or your grandchildren to play with. They may be somebody that just puts you a little on the edge of your seat. Did you have to bring him in here? It could get a little messy. And so the church must ask itself, Ooh, are we wired for that? Because... The text says, my father's house has many abiding places. And they're not all abiding places for people who look just like us. They are for people who are a lot different. So my walk across the room might be to the -the jack-in-the-box, where I buy lunch for the kid who has no lunch money. And then I give him a little card and invite him to my church and I find him and sit with him and and we sit with him together, dirty and smelly. And we say, thank you, God. This one has a room in your house. It it might mean that you pull somebody in that makes the rest of our our eyebrows kind of go up when you walk in together. But rather we should say, thank you, God, because that one has a room in our father's house could get a little messy. But the Bible reminds us the reason why we do this. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that Jesus took that first walk while we were still what? Who walked for us? As Bill Heibel says, walked across the cosmos to grab out to you and to me. Christ took the walk for us, which is our model. We now take that walk for other people. There is a reason you know this story, this God story, this Jesus story, because someone made sure you knew. And that is part of our conversation the next five weeks as as well. There's a postcard in your pew rack where you're sitting. It's black and white looking. has a man walking across the front there, or blue jeans at least, and it says on it, God used you to help point the way. It's intended for you to pull it out. Because somebody told you this God story. For some of us, those people are still alive. And there's a space for you to write a message, and if you want us to mail it, there's an offering plate sitting on the table in the back as the the worship team plays music in a few minutes. You fill out a postcard. If the person who needs this postcard from you has already passed on, would you pick another? A friend, 
a colleague, a child, an adult child, a grandchild, someone else you look at, and when you look at them, they point you to the story of God walking across the sky for you. Write something out. This is intended to help us understand how dependent we are on each other, to tell each other the story, to take the walk for each other. Don't just assume the world knows. Someone needs to tell the story. It's the third day perspective. I've just been with Jesus. I have to tell you. I do remember the story of a man who walked in the back of the church sanctuary, dirty and messy and not smelling so fabulous the day he showed up, unkept. He must have heard the music from the outside, and he came in the back door, very long, long aisle to the front, hard brick. And he caught the attention of a few right away and and made people a little uncomfortable. What was he planning? And he began taking steps down the aisleway just a little bit at a time and, and then put a few deacons on notice because he, you never know. Is he going to scream or shout something? Is he going to call the preacher down? What is he doing? Everyone's standing to sing. No one's disturbing him, but he's walking down the aisle and, and pretty soon folks sit and, and here's this man who's just taking one step at a time and, and he's looking up at the pipes in the front of the church at the big pipe organ until he makes his way all the way to the front and someone's speaking from up front and and everyone just leaves him be as he, he makes his way all the way to the front right here. Has everybody so nervous until he just sits down. Someone in that church had the good sense to get up out of their seat and come and sit beside him. And had the good sense to move him over just a little and stay with him. And, and the next week when he came, and the next week when he came, someone understood. This man has an abiding place in my father's household. So if that man comes here, will we understand the same? Will we do likewise? It's the question we'll ask for several weeks. God bless you all as we engage. God bless us all as we engage the conversation. Amen. And the body of Christ can say, Amen. If you're not in a small group, will you reconsider as you leave today? And if you've found no place that seems to be a good fit, come to the sanctuary, 4 o'clock this afternoon. I'll be here. We'll at least start the conversation. And I invite you to prayerfully stay engaged for the next five weeks. And now, may the body of Christ walk across the room in grace alone. Amen.